Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, 1 through 6 this morning. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach in cities. John had heard in prison about the works of Christ. He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that it would have the same effect as the words of Christ so long ago on John the Baptist, who received this comfort in the midst of his trials and even in the midst of his doubting. Lord, may it be that when your people are faced with doubts, that you would preserve them and grow them in faith by your word. Lord, we ask this for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would always uh, believe well in him, that our faith would always be increasing, and that we would always be able to uh, endure trials in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you'll notice in this particular passage that uh, with the first verse, we come to an end of the second verse of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember that there are five discourses in the book of Matthew that sort of form the, the grid for, uh, the structural grid for the book of Matthew. And in chapter 10, we had the instructions that Christ gave to his disciples as they were going out to preach the word of God. You'll remember that um, in chapter 10, we had the summary of Christ's uh, teaching. In chapters 8 and 9, we had the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, so the things that he did. Then in chapter 10, the instructions for the propagation of the gospel. And what we have seen, particularly in the last several weeks, is that in chapter 10, um, what had to have been quite shocking is that you have the Lord Jesus Christ coming, giving all these great teachings about the coming of the kingdom. And you have then even the Jews, the coming of the Messiah. And you have then this one who claims to be the Messiah, who is doing all these, uh, who is teaching all these great things about the coming of the kingdom who is then doing these amazing miracles that uh, showed very clearly that he was not only just the Messiah, but even the eternal Son of God himself. And then surprisingly, what we are told in chapter 10 is that the disciples are to expect an overwhelmingly negative response. They are to expect an overwhelmingly negative response. They are not to be shocked at all. When they go into places, they preach this message, and then they're immediately persecuted, and that even that some of them will, in fact, be put to death. Now, 
this negative response is the thing that is recorded in chapters 11 and 12, which we are just getting to now. So Christ, uh, after giving instructions for the propagation of this message, now we have the response to the message, which will come out exactly as the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has uh, predicted, even as he has told them. Uh, you can expect great opposition. Chapters 11 and 12 in the Gospel of Matthew is all about the opposition that came to the, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ himself uh, from those who opposed him. And what's maybe even more surprising than the fact that there is such a, a negative response is that the first thing that Matthew records with regard to the various responses to the Lord Jesus Christ is that even, even those who are true Christians who really did believe, even they in some ways were tempted to doubt the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that Matthew records is not, not it's not only just going to be the Pharisees. Of course, we will see that the Pharisees are, of course, opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowds are going to be opposed to him at various points. But even John the Baptist, the very first response that, that Matthew records uh, after these instructions is that John the Baptist himself doubts. He doubts whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ is actually the Christ. Now, this is such a, a shocking thing that over the course of history, there have been many who have tried to say, that John was actually not doubting here, that he was not asking for himself. He was actually just asking for the benefit of others. There were others who were doubting, and he's had said, you know, perhaps, um, you know, you can go and ask Jesus if he really is this person, if, and you can ask on my behalf, but it's really for your benefit. Uh, however, the plain reading of the text is that John himself doubted, that John himself doubted. Even those uh, who believed were caught off guard by the things that Christ was saying. And some of them even uh, doubted. And one of the things that shows, brothers and sisters, is that um, doubts in terms of our faith are things that can happen to anybody. It even happened to John. And you need to think through, perhaps this is happening to you. Perhaps you, you're going through something difficult and it is causing you to doubt this or that thing. And you're wondering, you know, should I really uh, follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he really going to be uh, my savior? Is he really my savior? And if that's you, perhaps you're wondering, you know, what, what can I do to strengthen my faith? Where do I turn? Where do I go? And this, brothers and sisters, is a great text to think on because here we have Christ giving his encouragement directly to a doubting saint. A doubting saint comes to him by means of messengers and says, are you really the one? And then Christ gives exactly the encouragement that is needed for John that he might grow in his faith and continue uh, to believe. Now, you may, you may be saying, well, you know, perhaps if you're in this situation and you're struggling with various doubts, you may say, well, it would be great if I was like John the Baptist and was living during the time of Christ and I could send messengers to him and get a direct, a direct word from the Lord Jesus Christ about my situation in particular. Um, John had that, but I don't have that. But brothers and sisters, as you think about, as we'll see in, in short order, what the Lord Jesus Christ actually says, what he says are things that can be encouragement and encouragement and can apply to people in every single age. In, in this sense, it wasn't really specific to what John was saying. John had doubts of the kind that everybody has, and the encouragement that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to John in his situation is the same encouragement that can apply and does apply to Christians who doubt in every single age. Which means that if you're struggling with your faith this morning, uh, the words that the Lord Jesus is saying here are for you. 
They are for you. This is the encouragement that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. You think about the things that, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ does here. What does he do? As we'll see, he quotes the scriptures. He shows the way in which the scriptures apply to himself. So how did the scriptures apply to Christ? And he shows the blessing of, of, being, of continuing on in the faith. Those are all the things that uh, the preaching of the word normally accomplishes. Uh, and it's no, no different. It's no different. What, what the, the instructions, the encouragement that, that Jesus gave to John are the instructions, the encouragement that are given to Christians who struggle with doubt uh, in every age. And so we'll look at this passage this morning under uh, two headings. So we'll look first at John's doubt in verses 2 and 3. And then we'll look at Christ's response, the encouragement that he gives in verses 4 to 6. So we have just very basically John's doubt and then the, then the, the words that were given. And we'll see that, that Christ encourages John, again, by pointing him to the scriptures, by showing the way in which the scriptures apply to, to Christ, how they apply to himself, and then exhorting him in light of that to continue on because of the blessings for those who do continue on. Now, the first question we have to think about is, does John actually doubt? Does John actually doubt? As I mentioned, there are many people in the history of the church who have said that John was not doubting here. Uh, many ancient commentators, many even reformers thought that John was asking on behalf of others and not uh, on behalf of himself. So he wasn't, he personally wasn't doubting, but he knew people who were doubting, that sort of thing. Uh, the problem is, is that this seems to read something into the text that just is not there. Um, there's just no indication that John was asking on behalf of others. And he even includes, you know, we, should, should we look for another? Are you the coming one or should we look for another? There's no reason to think that he was being polite, that, that, um, that he really didn't have those doubts, and yet he's kind of taking on the personification of someone who had doubts for the sake uh, of the benefit uh, of others. And the other uh, problem with this view that John is not doubting is that it um, doesn't really fit the context. You remember that, um, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Chapters 11 and 12 are all about negative responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody's doubting. Uh, we'll see later that the Jews who are around Jesus, when, when uh, he gives this response about John, they, they doubted. Christ then will, den will denounce all the various cities around him, Tyre, uh, uh, Bethsaida, all these places who uh, saw his works, um, which he says if Tyre and Sidon were to see them, they would have repented. So the idea is that those aren't believing in him. Chapter 12 centers largely on the opposition of the Pharisees. So they are, were all doubting him. Um, and so there's no reason to think that John, that uh, John was not doubting. And the purpose of starting with this is to say, again, brothers and sisters, even John, even John could doubt. And therefore, when we think about um, our own situation, we have to recognize even a real Christian can fall into doubting. And we need to think through uh, how it is that we respond when we are put in those situations. Now, the second question we need to ask is, why did he doubt? Why did he doubt? Now, in many, in many ways, this is an important question because John already knew that Jesus was the Christ. This had been proved to him very explicitly and very strongly. So you have a number of things that show this. Uh, for instance, that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ baptized or he, he actually baptized him, and then not only baptized him, but then saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. Uh, in the John, we are told that John had already been told by God himself that he upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
So there's clearly, you know, he sees the Spirit descend and remain on Christ. He therefore knows this is the Christ. This is the one who's anointed with the Spirit. He can baptize uh, with the Spirit himself. Uh, John himself bore witness of Christ, recorded in all the Gospels, that he's not worthy even to untie his sandals because of his greatness, and that was because he recognized him. Uh, John uh, continued to know who Jesus was as Jesus began his ministry, as we see from uh, John 3, where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. There was some uh, debate about how the two ministries of these two uh, great figures were to, to overlap and interact. And John's response is, well, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, so he's going to increase, I'm going to decrease, and I'm perfectly fine with that. So there was knowledge about, uh, about that. John, we are told from Luke, it was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, that he rejoiced even in the womb at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His father uh, knew clearly by revelation that his son would be the forerunner of the... So John honor of Jesus means that Jesus is clearly then uh, the Christ. Uh, even John's asking in this question, are you the coming one, seems to be an allusion to Psalm 118, which is the Messianic text. So John is even recognizing there is an expectation for the Messiah to fulfill the scriptures. So John knows the scriptures. He knows what things speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after all of that, he still doubts. He still doubts. It is significant even that uh, the way that Matthew records this, in, particularly in uh, verse 2, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, so even Matthew is going out of his way to say, these works are not just the works of Jesus. They are the works of the Christ, of the Messiah. This is, this is significant because um, the word Christ is actually very rarely spoken to Jesus in the first half of Matthew's gospel. In fact, only in the introduction, the introductory chapters, and in Peter's confession, the first half of the gospel. Those are the only places besides this very place. And that's because uh, everything in Matthew's gospel is driving towards Peter's confession. Matthew wants you to be led to make the same confession as Peter. And here, even as John the Baptist is doubting, Matthew, in the only place where he'll use the word Christ to refer to Jesus in the first half of his gospel, makes a point to do it here, to say that John was doubting the thing, which was very clear. John was doubting when he saw the works of Christ. And he's asking, are you really the Christ? And so then, brothers and sisters, if this, these were all the things that John knew, how is it possible that he could be doubting? How is it possible that he could be doubting? This is significant because if you are doubting, there's likely a lot of reasons why you should know as well that Jesus is the Christ. There have been a lot of things that have been shown to you. You think of what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. They were being tempted to turn away from the doctrine of justification by faith. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Was it not Christ that was put before you through the preaching of the word? His, he was set before your very eyes. You, you can't really deny him. I know that you saw him spiritually in this way. He was, he, was, he, was so, um, he was so put before you through the preaching of the word that I can say that you've seen him in this way. Um, and that therefore you shouldn't turn away. This is very often the case it is with, with all those who doubt. There is some other thing that's going on that is causing them to doubt. And here there are probably several factors that are contributing to John's doubting. Uh, first, one of the things that's very clear from the Gospels is that very many people did not um, understand what Jesus was doing in the sense of um, they had particular expectations of things that Jesus would do. And Jesus himself uh, did not appear to be meeting those expectations. And therefore, they said, you know, maybe this isn't really, maybe this isn't really the Christ. Uh, probably in connection with this, we have to remember that, that John himself is in prison now. 
and uh, if the end were coming extraordinarily quickly, and if Christ were coming to judge, you know, you know, uh, John preaches in Matthew chapter three, the axe is laid at the, fruit, the at the root of the tree. His message is is to say that the Messiah is coming. He's right behind me, and he's coming to judge. John gets put in prison. If the judgment comes, then John's immediately going to be delivered. And yet he's there kind of continuing on in prison, as we'll, as we'll see, will actually die in prison without receiving that particular deliverance. That may be playing uh, into it in some point. Uh, the kingdom of God was not uh, coming as quickly as people were thinking. Uh, but another thing that, it was, that was a, an important consideration is that John was suffering in prison. Just the, the basic idea that he was suffering. Um, brothers and sisters, this is always the way that suffering works when you suffer as a Christian. The reason why Satan wants Christians to suffer is not just because he wants you to undergo bodily harm. The, the, the goal is to get you to renounce your faith, to bring about doubts, and then to cause you to turn away from Christ. A saint gets the victory when he suffers and maintains his faith, even to death. That is a victory. And so uh, in any time that we're suffering, there's always a temptation to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always a, a, a doubting that can come. Uh, is Christ really my savior? Is he really my king? Is he really going to fight for me? Is he really going to deliver me from all of my enemies? Is, he, is, he, is it really worth it to, to follow this Christ if uh, in all these situations I'm going to continue to suffer? Um, is it really the case that I am the most blessed in all the earth if I believe in him and I'm going through all of these great difficulties? Uh, one of the things that suffering does in general is, is, is that it causes our field of vision, so to speak, our perspective on life to be greatly reduced. Uh, when we suffer, there's a tendency for us to not be able to see past our suffering. Um, oftentimes, the suffering will lead us not even to be able to see past it, um, not even just not being able to see into eternity with regard to the, you know, having an eternal perspective on things, but even just to be able to see through the fact that very often suffering is of a short duration. Um, we may be looking at months of suffering. We may not be able to see the end in sight. Likely the end will be in sight for, for many of us. But often in our sufferings, we, we, we can't see even out of uh, just our little few months of, of suffering. That's one thing that that's, uh, does to us. And um, th in this way, suffering can lead to Christians being spiritually nearsighted, where all that we can think about is the particular difficult thing that we're going through at the moment. And when we lose that perspective then of heaven and of eternity and even of the rest of our lives, it's in that moment that there can be a great temptation to doubt. Is it really worth it to maintain my faith if this is what I'm going to go through? And so all of these things are playing into uh, John the Baptist's doubts. It's not the fact that he, it's not true that he doesn't know any of the, of the things that are true, but his sufferings are causing him to doubt. His sufferings are causing him to doubt. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the great reasons why it's so important to be at church, why it is so important to be at church. You think of, of the sufferings that we go through in life. We are told in the Bible that we will always go through sufferings. It's always going to happen. And perhaps God gives periods of, of peace and of blessing in your life, but still we know that there will be sufferings in this life. And when those sufferings come, the thing that you can do to put yourself in a situation where you regain the perspective of eternity is come to church. Uh, this is where we approach God 
in the heavenly Zion. This is where we get a foretaste of heaven itself. This is where we have our gaze reoriented towards Christ. And so when we suffer, our suffering causes us to look inward to ourselves. We come to church, we worship with God's people, and we see uh, Christ was really raised from the dead. And eternal life has already begun in him. And if I have to suffer a little bit, and that suffering, as the Apostle Paul says, is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory, then my suffering is worth it. It is when we come to church that we have that particular perspective. When we worship with God's people and we sit under the preaching of the word. And this is the reason why, uh, we, even other places in the scripture where there are people that doubt, the, the turning point is in the worship of God. The, 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 that helps people is when they come to the worship of God and they behold God's glory. That is the thing that, that reorients us and helps us to see that we are, in fact, to maintain uh, our faith. And there's a, a parallel with as Christ says then in verses 4 to 6. What, what is it that Christ says to John? How is it that he encourages and comforts John in his doubting? You'll notice that there are a few things that are said. First, in verse 4, the thing that Jesus says to John is, Go tell John the things which you hear and see. The things that you hear and see. The idea of, of the things that you hear and see, the idea is that the things that you hear Jesus saying and the things that you see Jesus doing. This would be, again, a summary of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember chapters 5 to 7, a summary of his teaching, the things that you hear. And then chapters 8 and 9, a summary of the things he's doing. So go tell John all these things. These are the things that are, are in fact, uh, to help uh, John understand that Jesus really is the Christ and that he is to maintain his faith in all of these difficulties. Now, the next thing that Jesus does, and this is really the, the, the bulk, the, the meat, the main substance of what Jesus is saying in terms of the encouragement, comes in verse 5. And in verse 5, he gives a catalog, brief statement summarizing his preaching. Now, this, this, uh, this catalog of miracles, things that he does and things that he says, is quite significant. Again, this is the main substance list is quite significant for a few reasons. Uh, first, this list is made up of all things that are allusions to other parts of Scripture, and particularly all of them except for one are found in the book of Isaiah. So the, and, and not only that, they're found in the book of Isaiah in passages that are directly related to the coming of the Messiah and the renewal of all things. And so, for instance, we have um, first that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, these are all things that are found in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, and Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 to 6. And again, in the context, both of those places in Isaiah are about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come. These are the things that are going to happen. These are, this is the great renewal that's going to, to come. And so go tell John the things that you see and hear. The blind are seeing. They really are seeing. The lame are walking and the deaf are hearing. Uh, another one in this list is the, that the lepers will be cleansed. Now, there's actually no specific te text in the Old Testament that speaks of the um, But it is significant that um, this would have been very natural to understand it as a work of the Messiah in light of the significance of the temple. So the temple is cleansing. Um, the, the ability to, to cleanse, that's the whole purpose of the sacrificial system. And so it's quite significant then that um, had to be even left out of the temple because in some sense he was going to defile it. The temple in general was meant to cleanse people. Christ is now saying that cleanse through me. I can do more than the temple in terms of cleansing, which is something that would have related to the expectations of the Messiah. 
And again, this is the only one that doesn't come from Isaiah. The next one, the dead are raised, comes from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Again, a prophecy of speaking about uh, the coming of the, of the Messiah and what will happen in those days. And then the last one, the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's very, very close to Isaiah 61, verse 1, where it speaks of the anointing of the Messiah with the Spirit, that God has appointed him to preach good news to the poor. Uh, all of these things are texts from Isaiah, except for the one. All of them are, are from Isaiah, speaking about the coming of the Messiah. And what Jesus is saying is, these are all the things, if you look in the scriptures and you want to know what the Messiah is going to do, you can look in the, gospel, in, in, the, in the book of Isaiah, which is often called the fifth gospel. You can look in the book of Isaiah and you can see the Messiah is going to do all these things. Now, the second thing that Jesus says is, I have done all these things. That's the second thing that's significant about this list. If you were to have a biblical view of the Messiah, you would see that these are the things you would expect. And then Jesus then shows how all those things relate to himself. Christ is the one who did all of these things. We've been looking for uh, several months. We looked at the various miracles that come in chapters 8 and 9. And the, this list um, very clearly is related to, to that list of miracles. Uh, everything, every one of these things were things that were done uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ in chapters 8 and 9. Perhaps the only exception would be uh, the raising of the dead. But that is uh, going to be something that even, even then we do see that the Lord Jesus Christ does with regard to uh, Lazarus. Uh, in uh, John chapter 11. All these things are things that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And that, so the purpose is, if you were to expect the Messiah based on biblical material from the prophets, you would see these things, and I have done all these things. This is the encouragement that I'm giving to you. The coming one does these things, and I have in fact does these things. Uh, I, I have in fact done these things. Now third, the third reason this list is, is significant is because um, it indicates that the purpose of miracles was to be, is that they were to be a foretaste of the coming of the kingdom, a foretaste of the full consummation of all things. Uh, one of the things that you'll note if you look back at the context in these texts in Isaiah is that they are speaking first and foremost about heaven itself, about the new heavens and the new earth, about things that we would normally associate with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Often what we see in the prophets is that they, they did not have a, a clear view of the distinction between the first and the second coming. And uh, this is something that's called a prophetic foreshortening, the idea that the, the, the prophets speak of the end times as the coming of the Messiah, all things are renewed. And what we saw when Christ actually came is that there was a distinction between this, this coming and the next. The reason why they were put together in the prophets is because there's a connection between the two. Christ really did inaugurate the kingdom of God. And everything that he did, even though there's a, a period of wait time, so to speak, between the first and second coming, everything that he did was meant to show what that second coming and what all those blessings were meant to be like. So, that, so if you were to ask the question, well, what are some things that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like? Well, the dead raised. How, how do we know that? Well, Christ raised the dead while he was here. How do we know that there will be no blind in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, when Christ was here, when he inaugurated the kingdom, he opened the eyes of the blind. How do we know that there will be no lame? Well, when, when Christ was here, when, when he inaugurated the kingdom, he caused the lame to leap. And so when we see those things happening on a smaller scale, when Christ was inaugurated in the kingdom, we can know for sure that they will happen to a greater extent when the kingdom is consummated. That is the purpose of all these things. So in all these ways, then, 
Christ uses this catalog of miracles to, to uh, show John and to, that he himself is the Christ and to encourage him when he doubts. So if we were to just summarize then, what is it that Christ does? He quotes scripture. He shows how it applies to Christ. He implies that these blessings have already begun. They've already begun in him. And that ultimately, these are the things that you need to consider when you doubt. If you are struggling with doubts today, the things that you really need to know are the things that Christ has done, the things that Christ has said. You need to know how the scriptures apply to him. And you need to know that all blessings are found in him, that these blessings have already begun. And because they've already begun, they will continue to the very end, no matter how much you suffer in this life. And if you maintain your faith, if you maintain your faith, then you will have these blessings in the end. That is the way in which John, in which Jesus encourages a doubting saint, the way in which he encourages John uh, not to give up his faith when he doubts. Now you'll notice then the last thing that Jesus says in verse 6 is he says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he who is not offended uh, because of me. The idea is in light of everything I've said, in light of of what the scriptures say about what the Messiah is going to do, in light of what the ways in which I have fulfilled these things, Christ says, know that you are blessed if you uh, are not offended because of me. If you actually maintain your faith, you will have all these blessings. This is a statement of blessing, but it's also an exhortation. Um, Christ is the one in whom all these blessings are found. This is the best news of all. And the idea is, do not, the exhortation is, do not turn away from him, because if you do, you will be giving up these blessings. Now, of course, all those who truly do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be uh, will persevere to the end. But not all of those who confess their faith openly uh, and publicly will endure to the end. It is those who hear these words, who receive them well, who are those who will in fact persevere. And so what is it then, brothers and sisters, that you need when you doubt? What is the thing that is needed? Again, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that perhaps you think, you know, it'd be great if Jesus could come, appear to me, and tell me the things that I need to hear so that I would not doubt. But brothers and sisters, when he did that, he simply said the things that are already found in the scriptures, the things that you need to know in order to be strengthened in your faith and not to doubt are normal things that you hear every week as you sit under the preaching of the word of God. And even if you think about it, um, in terms of our theology of preaching, Christ does speak to, to us. Uh, he's not here on earth like he was then, but the purpose of preaching is that Christ has appointed someone to be his spokesperson, such that then he, that, that this person then will give the message of Christ, and it should have then the same effect as the words of Christ. Uh, even as Christ spoke to John to encourage him, so now I speak to you each and every week in order to encourage you in the faith, to show you the ways in which the scriptures do uh, apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to show you the blessings that are in him, to exhort you, to cling to him, to warn you of the great dangers of turning away from him. This is the thing that you need more than anything else. And it's the thing that, in this sense, is very near to you. Uh, one of the, the famous works in history, Christian works in history, is uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written in the 17th century by John Bunyan. And uh, in that book, towards the end of the, of the first part of the book, which deals with the, the story of Christian, who is the, the main character in the book, he's going along the path towards the, the celestial city. And at, at some point towards the end, he leaves the, the path. And he gets caught by a giant and gets ta- taken into a castle. And the, the, and the name of the castle is Doubting Castle. 
So now it was because of his own fault that he left the way, and it leads him as a real Christian to, to have these very serious doubts. He is imprisoned by this giant. He is tormented. He's beaten in all these kinds of ways. He is, has a friend there with him. And at one point, Krishna is saying, you know, it may be better for us just even to commit suicide because of how difficult these are. His doubts were leading him even to contemplations of suicide. And, the, you know, his friend, you know, uh, encouraged him, saying, no, no, that would be a violation of, of God's law. It would not be good. Uh, and then the way that they get out of Doubting Castle is they realize that the key to the cage where they're being kept is actually in their pocket. It was actually there all along. And it was the promises of God. And so it was because of their negligence with regard to the promise of God that they, they had forgotten all these great blessings that they had. And all the time as they are being beaten, as they're being tormented, as they are going through all these difficulties and even contemplating suicide, the way out of the doubting was near to them. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you. The way out of the doubting is near to you. It's found in the preaching of the word of God, which points you to the Lord Jesus Christ and all the blessings that are found in him. You are truly blessed if you have Christ. Therefore, maintain your faith in him. Leave the doubting castle, take the key out of the pocket and open the door. May it be that God would grant you the grace so to do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do Thank you for your word, for the promises that are ours in Christ, for all the things which he said and did, the, the promises of the gospel, the miracles which give us a foretaste of heaven and prove to us that we do in fact have many great blessings that are coming for us. Help us, Lord, always to believe this. And Lord, if we should be put in prison, uh, like, uh, like John the Baptist, help us to maintain this perspective to have the perspective of the Apostle Paul, who spoke of all of his sufferings as a light and momentary affliction, appearing for him an eternal weight of glory. Lord, may it be that we would have this same eternal perspective, having our eyes lifted to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we do ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.